Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Randy Lewis with Remax in Glendale, Arizona. Last year, he closed 98 transactions with a total sales volume of $18 million. His average sales price was $186,000, of which 59% were buyers and 41% were sellers. Last year, he had a four-member team, one buyer agent, one administrator, one team manager, and one team leader. Randy Lewis is the team leader of the 10X Home Team. He's been an agent for 25 years. In his best year, 2009, Randy sold 456 homes worth $34 million. He's sold over 2,000 homes in his career. In this call, Randy talks about learning business principles at his father's side, trustee sales, and high-volume systems, the definition of a fast wholesale deal, and a bird dog almost being cast in the TV show Property Wars, working with investors, the website he uses to attract investor leads, flipping hundreds of properties as a principal and as a broker, what happened to his real estate portfolio in the Great Recession, how he generates repeat and referrals from his past clients and sphere of influence, his past client referral script, why he uses an unconventional database management software, how to keep for sale by owners and expired listings on the phone and talking to you, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Randy. Thank you, Mike. Hey, Randy. It's great to have you here. Randy, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, I uh, started out in the family business from time I was about 13. I was in family business that ranged from being on my dad's tool belt as a contractor to working in a hardware store and a glass shop. And at one time, even I was a locksmith. You mentioned the family business and your dad was a contractor. What kind of contractor was he? You know, he was uh, kind of a master of all. I mean, I used to help them put roofs on houses. We poured concrete for commercial buildings, remodeled just about anybody's house that was all word of mouth, all referral business. He never advertised. How did you get into real estate? What made you decide to go down the real estate path? You know, I had bought my first house. I was working in the family business, real estate agent that, you know, we looked at a couple of houses. We kind of had fun where we were out driving around and then you know, at the end, I realized, wow, that's a job. Somebody has that job. I, I want that job. You know, it uh, gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted. Randy, when you got started at 23, did you have a fast start or a slow start? You know, I was uh, hungry and I didn't know any better. I'd say it uh, turned out to be kind of a fast start in that I was hungry 
I came from a background that you do whatever it takes to be successful. You take care of the customer and you be the best that you can be. An example is I think my first listing was a, I don't know, a $25,000 condo that nobody else wanted to list in the office. And the owner comes over, he says, Hey, you want a listing? I'm like, sure. You know, I didn't know any better. So I took this $25,000 listing and it turned out that it was owned by the original developer that built this apartments that turned into condos. And I ended up selling that particular unit. Someone reached out to me, a buyer contacted me and it turned out to be an investor who ironically enough was actually the seller's old partner when they developed the units. Neither of them knew what was going on. So what ended up happening is I built a relationship with this investor and my career started from there. I was helping him buy as many in that particular complex and then other places. And then I started getting listings in the complex and I found that I had a real knack for working with investors, things that were unemotional and business minded. You know, I was just attracted to that immediately. It was a a lot of fun. You know, it seemed to be seamless and easy to me. Rand, did you recall how many homes you sold that first year? I think the first year I sold, I was part-time, and I recall the average sales price at the time was 67000 on a single-family home. And I think that first year I sold somewhere around 10 or 11, somewhere in there, not many. But, you know, on today's standards, a part-time, that's not too bad. How long did it take you before you went full-time in real estate? Probably within that first year, I started to go full-time. We closed one of the family businesses, and I thought, this is my opportunity. If I ever want to do something on my own and have some freedom and be in charge, this is the way to do it. Randy, how long have you been in the business now? Uh, Just over 25 years. Let's fast forward to today. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year, uh, rated about 98. Do you know the sales volume? About 22 million. Randy, how many homes did you sell in your best year, and what year was that? In my best year, it was right at about 456. Do you recall the sales volume? 34 million. Do you recall what year that was? That was 2009. Well, Randy, I have a question related to your your high-volume year. You said you sold 456 homes. In fact, I, if I understand correctly, you sold over 400 homes two years in a row. That's pretty amazing. One of my questions is going to be, how did you do that? And a follow-up question is going to be, what was different between a few years ago when you sold the 400 and now where you sold 98? The majority of those 400-plus in those couple of years were trustee sales. And how I got into that business is, is ironic, but it uh, kind of stems back to my beginning. Working with investors, I had done that. I had, I, in the process, in the past 25 years, I bought, fixed, and flipped hundreds of homes myself. And it, uh, you, you kind of get whatever you're comfortable at doing, for whatever reason, if you focus on that, it's going to expand. And since I was in the investment business, I started going to trustee sales I became friends with someone that had been down there for years, someone in the, what they say, good old boy network type of thing. And I became integrated into the process, the people, the culture. And what started out as I was buying properties for myself, we started buying more properties. And what happened was people were reaching out to me saying, hey, you know, you're down there and not everybody can do that. Maybe you can pick me up a property. 
So what started out as me buying for myself investment property to fix and flip or buy and hold, I turned into a guru of, of sorts and without any, any advertising budget, no money, nothing, just a website with a simple web form. Funny, it's still up right now and it still drives business without even trying. All of a sudden I'm, you know, buying properties and I'm the guy that's known that's buying the most million dollar properties, you know, at the courthouse and things like that. So it became fun. We could literally buy a house, literally bid on it in the morning. And by the time we left the, the auction that day, I, we had it sold. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And the, the numbers that I give the 456 homes and the 34 million, the money that we made those years was, was unbelievable. I mean, it, it was, but it was fun. I mean, it didn't seem like work. It was uh, kind of, I'm an adrenaline junkie. So it was uh, right up my alley. It's, you know, fast paced. You have to think on your feet. My partner at the time, he used to get a kick out of my interaction with other people. So if it was getting to be kind of bored for him, he would say, Hey, let's go get you some coffee. Cause he felt that was uh, camping <laughs> up a little bit down there. <laughs> I, I, I tend to be pretty quick on my feet and fairly animated. So uh, apparently he needed entertainment. So the majority of those sales were trustee sales. Now you're in Arizona in a suburb of Phoenix. And at that time, the market was going down, was already down, right? I mean, it was a buyer's market at that time and property values had fallen. Is that the correct environment we're talking about? Yeah, that's correct. I would have to say that in my career, the times when I've excelled the most or done the best is when everyone else was struggling. And I think it's because I like the challenge. Normal real estate for me can be a little monotonous, a little boring. I take on a lot of different tasks and a lot of different projects at the same time to keep me interested. Whereas, you know, I start my day with more energy than most people, you know, after they've had something, coffee or whatever their favorite beverage is. For me, I wake up happy and I start to roll. If my body would do it, I'd work 24-7. But uh, it's not good for, for your body or your relationships for sure. You mentioned that in those years you were down at the courthouse steps, you were buying these these trustee sales. Those are basically foreclosure properties that are being sold at the courthouse steps. And you said that you'd turn around and sell them often by the end of that day. Let's walk through that just real quickly for everyone and break it down a little bit. Were you buying those with your own money or were you buying those with investors' money? And then who were you turning around and selling them to? We were purchasing them with our money. And then for certain properties, we, may need, we would get hard money loans if it was exceeding that. Didn't use any investors' money, you know, other than a hard money lender, that type of thing. I guess to take a step back, what made me successful then and the work ethic that I had was that we were doing things that other people weren't willing to do, which is usually when my business succeeds is when you're doing something that, you know, if, if it's something easy and everybody can do it, not that big a deal. If you go out of your way and you do something that other people either don't have the idea, can't think it through, or really don't have the motivation to complete, then you're going to, you're going to excel. So for me, I'm an idea guy. So I'm always thinking of, Hey, how can I do this better? How can I make this easier? How can I make it efficient? How can I systemize it? How can I scale it? So for me, my, my brain just works that way automatically, you know, coffee, ADD, it's that whole process. But, uh, you know, it, it's helped me immensely. So what would happen is it was before technology was what it is today. So today, if you look at technology, if you want to find anything on the internet, you can do it. You want to find a property going to trustee sale, you can find it on the internet. 
when we were doing that, when back in the day when I was buying trustee sales, literally I went to the courthouse with a phone book stack of paper every day that we printed out. Um, I killed a lot of trees. My partner killed a lot of trees. And what we would do is each of us on our way down to the courthouse, we would drive the properties that were questionable. We could tell which properties were going to go to sale that did, may not have had an opening bid at the time, but we knew there was going to be a bid on it. So we would drive the properties that no one else knew was going to go to sale that day. And in the event a bid came in that was desirable to us, we could buy it. So by really doing what other people weren't willing to do, no one else was going to drive by all these properties and the chance that they were going to go. But essentially we were creating our own algorithm where we could tell which properties were going to go to sale, even though there was no opening bid and everyone else was ignoring those properties. So by having the phone book full of documentation about the properties and we had comparables, quick comparables already printed out. And you got to remember, this is over 10 years ago when, you know, nobody was willing to do that much work at the time. So when a property came up to bid and there were a lot of times that we were the only ones on it and people would look at us like, how do they know to bid on this property? And sometimes people would get involved and they would bid against us on it, which is fine because we knew more about the property than they did. So, you know, we really won by doing things that other people weren't willing to do. You were doing the research and the legwork on these properties where values were unknown. And because of that, you were willing to take a risk that other people weren't. And you would often be able to pick up properties of a great deal. Yeah, that's how it was. The funny thing was, is they would make fun of us because we always walked in, each of us had a you know a phone book size stack of papers and they would laugh at us. And then when a sale would come up for a property that you know wasn't on our list of as a buy that day, because we'd go down there with properties we knew we were gonna try to buy. And then we'd go down there with our big big stack of papers. And when a property came up that nobody expected, we were able to thumb through, you know, five hundred pages and look for a prop find the property, look at what the comparables were, and obviously we're glancing. I mean we didn't drive every single property. There's no way you could do that. But we'd probably each drive five, you know, five or six to ten properties a day on the way down there. So it was hit or miss. But uh, it was fun. I mean, and there were times when we'd been on a property that we knew nothing about. You know, if a, I can remember we bought a burned-out property one time. It, we didn't know it at the time. But it, the bid came up at 13000 So at the time, we would actually get on the phone, call title company. We would be trying to stall the sale at the same time. We would call title, check on title, trying to look at comps, see what it was worth, and then say, hey, there's still inherent risk because we've never driven by the property. We don't know. It could be burned out, anything. So we bought one at 13000 thinking, oh, man, what'd we do? So at the end of the day, after we finish the sales, we say, let's go see what we bought. So we drive down. We see it. It actually is a burned out house. But with all the connections that I had at the time, and that was where that was one of my strengths is I was able to create and generate a lot of online activity and clients and people that we had a waiting list of people. So I would just send an email blast out at the end of every day. Here's a property we bought. And, you know, somebody paid 20,000 for that property and we, you know, it was sold before the next day. So it was, it was, it's fun. It's fast paced. It's not that way anymore. There was a TV show on a while ago and they had sent me a request to send in my interview because they wanted me to be on the show. It was a couple of years ago and I, I declined you know, not wanting to disrupt my business because at that time I was rebuilding, you know, trustee sales were, were going away. There were just, just less of them. And I knew that, you know, being on a reality TV show, you know, for good or bad, for me at the time, I couldn't disrupt my business because I had to rebuild it. 
When you were talking, I was thinking of the show, if it's the one we're both thinking about, I think it was called Property Wars. Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, it's funny because all those people that are on the show, I, I knew that I know them personally, you know, not where I, you know, I mean, it may be something where we went, went out after a sale here or there or saw them somewhere, but uh, I knew them well enough from the sales that the personalities, they call it reality TV. They really should call it non-reality TV because there were, when I, I watched some of the shows and after a, a while, I just couldn't watch them anymore because they were so different from what reality was. Um, kind of a, <laughs> an, a funny example is that they would show, you know, somebody bought the house and then somebody was going to the courthouse to get the keys. Well, when we buy those houses, nobody gets keys. It's like you hire a locksmith or you, you hire somebody to break in. So it, it's kind of funny. Those must have been exciting times. You said that the technology changed, the market improved, and so I assume that business dried up or at least it shrunk from what it was, and you had to modify your business. How did you transition your business? What is your major business driver today? Our major driver today is really our sphere of influence, past clients. We've, we've done some marketing. You know, I've spent some money on direct mail. You know, there's some other, other things that we've done in the past, and there, some seem to be successful for a while. But for me, I'm always looking for that really well-leveraged return. In other words, if I spend a dollar, I get $10 back. I can spend a dollar and get $3 back, and it works, but I'm still always looking for that great return on something. When you say you're working with your sphere of influence and past clients, you also mentioned earlier that you like working with investors. When you're working your sphere and your past clients, do they tend to be investors or are they more owner-occupant? The majority of our clients now are owner-occupants. One of the things that we're going to do this year is crank up our investor base because it really is easy for me to, to re-engage those people. You know, I've got a database separate just probably with investors of 2,000 people. A lot of our clients back in the day, they were real estate agents. A lot of my clients that bought from me at the trustee sales were real estate agents. And some of the business that I did back then was I would list those properties for sale for them as well. So it's kind of interesting. Those trustee sales, you would buy them at the courthouse steps in, in your name or a company name, and then you would turn around and sell them. At any point, did you act as a broker? You Were you receiving a commission on those transactions or were you just doing this out of a personal portfolio? Later on, I, I converted the business when, when I scaled it, later on, it became strictly as a real estate broker, you know, handle, handling everything to the brokerage, as opposed to in the original time, I was a principal. An example, even back in the day, nine out of 10 of those, uh, well, I should say all of those at the time, I was, I was a principal or my LLC or my business partner's LLC was a principal. So if we bought something today and we sold it to someone else, then at the time, the deed was coming in our name. And then when the deed came, we would sign it over to them. That's an incredible model that you had developed and an amazing volume. Oh my gosh, that's, that's a couple properties a day that you were transacting. But I see how you created this database of buyers and you could make that flow so quickly. Did you ever get stuck with properties that you couldn't flip over? You couldn't sell right away to an investor? You know, that, that's funny because there, there were some times when someone might back out of a deal that they wanted. In essence, when you say we got stuck with it, the funny thing about that is even if you got stuck with a property, you made money. 
So at the end of the day, the worst case, you landed on your feet. So you would just keep it in your portfolio and rent it out and do long-term? Is that what happened? Well, sometimes we would just flip it. it. The only ones that were kept as rental properties were never a bad deal. I can't think of any that at this time that we lost money on ever. Uh, everything that we did, we bought it so well that we, we didn't get hurt on it. So the ones that we kept as rentals weren't because we got stuck with them. They were, they were usually intentional, intentionally purchased as rentals because the, the cash flow was so good. Do you still go down to the trustee sales and kind of see what's going on down there? Or have you changed your, your business model is to such that you don't do trustee sales anymore? You know, I still do them. I think last year of those, probably 10 of them were trustee sales right around there. So I'm still involved. It's hard to let go of something that you really know so well that you can make it happen to the point where when a call comes in for a trustee sale, inside of about two minutes or three minutes, I've already qualified that person. I know whether they're a bird dog for somebody else, they're a dreamer, there's a fix and flip or investment real estate seminars in town. I can tell when I have an uptick of calls from that. It's kind of, it's, it's ironic, but to answer your question, yes, we still do some trustee sales. Pretty simple. There's 350 a month right now, approximately compared to there were times that we had a thousand a day. So, you know, it's quite a bit different. You mentioned a bird dog for people that don't know. What does that mean? What's a bird dog? So a bird dog, an example is I got a call last week from a guy called about uh, investment properties. And when people call me about investment properties, I don't know if it's trustee sales or, you know, they're looking for something to buy and hold, fix and flip. Either way, qualifying questions. But a bird dog is somebody that's calling up. They typically don't have any money themselves. They're working with a, quote, partner who's going to fund the deal. So they're just out looking for deals for somebody else. This particular person that called last week, it, it turned ironic because what started out is I thought he wanted to buy something, and then I thought he was a bird dog, meaning he was buying for someone else, to where he ended up proposing that he find properties for me, and then we split the profit, and I were to fund them. I was good with that. You know, I mean, if this guy can find them, why wouldn't I buy them? If they make sense, I'm in. So do you have a stable of bird dogs, or have you throughout time? We have some bird dogs that send properties to us, and one of our goals is to increase that. Let's back up for a minute and talk about some basics here. First of all, where is Glendale, Arizona? Glendale is part of the Metro Phoenix market. So an, an example of that, we're in Arizona. For those of you who don't know where Phoenix is, or Scottsdale. Where my office is and my house, I, I live about a mile from the office. I am travel time to four different cities, meaning I'm about 12, 10 to 12 minutes from Scottsdale. I'm five minutes from Peoria. I'm five minutes from Phoenix. Where my office is located is kind of in the heart of, being in the Metro Phoenix area. We're pretty accessible. Do you know what the population is there in the, the Metro Phoenix market or in your market that you're working? The Metro Phoenix market is 1.5 million people. And that really is my market. Here, it's, it's a, it would be a challenge to work. You couldn't just work a city here. I know in some, you know, some areas of the country, you can work a city, and it's a, a big area. You can specialize in and say, hey, I don't go outside of that. Here, we're, we're so spread out that I literally can be from one end of the valley, which is what they call, they call it the Valley of the Sun, 
metro Phoenix area, I can be from one end to the other in about 45 minutes, maybe an hour max. We do limit how far we go. There are certain parts at the very extremes that we don't service because it's not in the best interest of our client, generally speaking. You know, to show somebody at the edge of an hour to meet someone over there to show five properties and do that every day. I think that uh, realistically, the agent's not going to be as motivated to drive over there when that one house comes up that they need to move fast on as they might be if it was 15 minutes away. Randy, could you please describe your current real estate market? Our average price in the area is right in, it's right in the 200, 205 range. Our trend right now is, is flat right now. Expectations from the experts are saying that we're level. We may see a little increase. I look at you know where we've been, where we're going, and I, I see us being level right now unless there's some scarcity or the reverse of that. An example is when our market was down and the hedge funds purchased a bunch of properties. If a bunch of hedge funds start releasing properties and increase their inventory, obviously that's going to affect you know, supply and demand, and there's going to be a little more supply, so, so prices will adjust or correct or stay level for longer. The average days on market is 89 days in our market. Our team's average, or I should say our listing average, which would be my average, is 39 days. You know, knowing your numbers is important, and it helps you when you're in front of your people and share what your expertise is, what your unique selling proposition is. Our average original list price to final sales price is 7% above the average real estate agent in our area. What do you attribute that to? Pricing the house is right to begin with, and that's really what it is. So you're using that information on your listing presentation. You're 39 days on the market and 7% higher than the average agent in the market. You bet. As an example, I'm training an ISA right now, you know, making calls to expired and for sale by owners. And one of the challenges that he was having was he said, People hang up. They start to hang up. How do I keep them on the phone? I said, what are they saying? And he says, well, they said, you know what? I've already spoken to 50 realtors. You know, I don't need another one calling me. And he was, he was really stumped. He didn't know how to stop or engage these people at that point. So for me, because I've mastered scripts and dialogues for the last 20 years, now it's really a subconscious for me. In other words, I'm able to adapt to wherever I'm at. If you know what you're talking about, you're an expert at it. You can adapt to a question or an objection that somebody has. So my suggestion to this ISA is when you're talking to someone and they say, hey, I've spoken with 50 realtors already today, your answer to that is, well, of the 50 realtors, how many of them told you that their average days on market is 39 days or that their average original list price to sales price is 7% above the MLS average? So for him... That was a game stopper. That changed everything for him because now these people are listening. Now they're, you know, he's got their attention and from there now he hopefully convert to an appointment for me. So you had to know your statistics. You had to know how they compare to the averages and then you use that information to help schedule appointments and show your value proposition in this case to a seller. That's fantastic. Thanks. Randy, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market today? Right now, I would have to say that our niche is really working, working our sphere of influence. And I'm not saying that we do it great because we, we really don't. At 98 units last year is, to me, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's dismal. You know, it should be three, 400 units. And a lot of that is 
having so many different systems going at the same time and not focusing on one or two. So we've really pulled back over the last few months so that our focus is, is on our sphere of influence. I've been doing this for 25 years, and we just now consistently started sending out a newsletter the last few months. And a, a great lesson to be learned is the first month or two months when it came out, I was making adjustments to it because it looked horrible. And I'm uh, pretty specific on what our marketing and what our message is and, and how our brand is conveyed. And I'm, you know, really pushing the designers to do what, what they promised they could do, which is really emulate other marketing pieces that we've done. But the point is it looked, it really was pretty cheesy looking. And the ironic part is that we had uh, two leads off the first newsletter and it was uh, mailed out to 500 people. So, you know what, if you just get something going out consistent and I've got my business partner, Ben, to thank for that because he said, you know, we just need to get it out. He says, I know you want it to be looking great and be polished, but it'll never get out if, if we wait for that. So it went out, it's working that simple and uh, lesson learned. Randy, let's talk about your current business and how you're generating that business, your sphere of influence and past clients. Let's dig into that a little deeper. First of all, how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Well, we've had some database challenges over changing different systems over time. Right now, our database is about four, just over 4,000 people. Of that, I couldn't tell you the exact mix of sphere of influence because our tagging system and segmenting our database is not accurate to a point where I can just pull stats out and, and be confident that they're accurate. You know, selling over 2,000 homes and then not being able to track all those people is, is obviously somewhere that if, if I could do it all over again, that's something I would change and be more diligent in. So that's a lesson that you would give to agents coming into the market now or, or moving along and building their databases to be real specific about tracking and tagging those folks. If you could do it all over again, what kind of information would you track? We're tracking it now. A, we want to track who the client is, where their origin is, obviously the lead source, any referrals that they've sent us in the past, because we want to track who your raving fans are, who sent me one referral, who sent me five. In other words, who am I taking out to dinner tonight and who am I going to wait till next week to go to lunch with or have coffee with? Because there's a big difference. You know, people need to be rewarded for the activity that's positive that helps your business. So uh, to continue that, that answer, we'd segment who they are, where they are. Something that we need to be better at is getting their birthdays, their anniversaries, kids and pets names. When their sale was, believe it or not, the biggest key Part of the information that we have as real estate agents is when they bought and sold, and our database isn't updated with all that information. And what a great excuse to send somebody a card, hey, it's the 10-year anniversary of your home purchase. Or, hey, happy anniversary, happy birthday. You know, send a birthday card to a seven-year-old. If you don't think the parents are going to remember that it came from the real estate agent, they're going to love you. A lot of agents have made that error. Times are really good. They were moving along quickly. They weren't maintaining their database. I've done that myself. How are you going back now and rebuilding your database? Are you doing that yourself? Are you contracting that out to have somebody come in and work specifically on that? Are you just going to do it as you move along into the future and, and not worry about the past? What's going to be your approach to rebuild that database? It's obviously working already, but how are you going to make it stronger? 
Well, we are working on that. And part of it is a commitment that I'm actually going to call people that I know personally and get them re-engaged and update some of their info. The people that could have been past sales, I mean, when you sell 400 houses or even 100 or 200 and you've got buyer agents on your team, you don't have a personal relationship. So it's not necessarily required for me to be the one to reach out to that person. So I can, you know, I can outsource that to either an admin on my team or we could contract that outside. But a lot of it is, is really just getting people engaged. And for the most part, people avoid the written newsletter or the printed document because it's snail mail. But I think that what's happening with emails and I'm guilty of it. You know, I look at my emails, I click on the ones I'm going to delete and hit the delete button done because if they're not critical to my day, it's not really that I even see them. At least if somebody's getting my newsletter and you see a picture of us on the front and it's grabbing them, I think that we have a better chance of them keeping it for more than the time it takes them to delete an email. I know it costs more money, but the return on that for us right now, just in in newsletters is, is pretty good. I'm going to come back to the newsletter in just a second. Staying on the database, you've got 4,000 people in the database. Who is in the database right now? Anybody that we can track that has had any interaction with us. So for me, the way we use our database is if we have a pay-per-click campaign going on with you know, landing pages, websites, things like that, those people stay in whatever system they're in. Example, let's just take one of the big you know, the, let's, let's take homes.com as an example. If someone comes in homes.com and they had a CRM in the back end that we were using, then we would keep them in that system until they became more than just a, a suspect, so to speak. When they raise their hand or we've engaged with them, we're going to meet with them or there's an appointment, there's something more than just an online relationship, then we'll bring them into our database. So anyone that can do more than just fog a mirror. In other words, you pay for contacts, you pay for people to go to a website but how many of those people are actually leads that could be converted? You don't really know until you've had some kind of engagement with them and they've agreed to move forward. So for us, our database includes someone that we're working with already, somebody that we've already worked with, somebody that's in our sphere of influence, a past client, someone that refers someone to us, someone that we've met that isn't just a cold lead, so to speak. What type of software do you use to track these people? I use Infusionsoft. It's not for the timid. I mean, I've probably got $30,000 invested in, in development and costs and hiring people to actually program it. Why did you choose Infusionsoft over, say, Top Producer, one of the software programs that are designed specifically for real estate agents? Sometimes I get in my own way. And this, this may have been one of those times, but overall... It, uh, I wanted accountability with the agents, you know, the team members, and I wanted to be able to, I'm one of those people that if you tell me that there's software out there that can track people's activities or that if somebody does something, I can make them do, I can help them do something else. Or if somebody clicks on something, I know that they opened an email. If somebody, if I want to build a landing page that drops somebody into my database, I can do it from Infusionsoft those types of things. If I want to trigger something, when my admin changes somebody from a lead into under contract or we just listed their property and we change that stage to we just listed their property, when my admin does that, it automatically sends an email to that client telling them what to expect. 
so for me, what I use, the majority of my database is obviously we're keeping people in there. My agents, can I can keep them accountable, and they're able to manage. They can keep the clients accountable, so to speak. They can see who's in what stages, who they need to call, and there's a, a record, and it's one, one single place. And I've made the agent's portion pretty simple to use. You know, we're always improving on that, and I know there's some ways we can do that. But they should, they can open up their look at their dashboard and says, hey, these are the new leads I need to call today. These are the people that are overdue that need to call from me. And these are how many people I have in each of these different stages. And this is my revenue stream for today or what's in the future. When I had top producers, something like that, uh, nobody seemed to engage, be engaged with it. No one wanted to take it on. Oh, it was too confusing. It was this or that. The difference with Infusionsoft is it's, it can be confusing if you're in the back end. And there, there, there's more than one way to do things with it, but it's so customizable for me that I can make it do more of what I want it to. And it's, it's not, I'm not held by someone else's email, you know, where they think things should be. I can trigger things by someone else's actions as opposed to it's automatically going to do it. Now, I can send a different message when somebody's an A, B, or a C buyer. And if they change from being an A buyer or a C buyer, the campaign will change right there. It stops one, starts another one. I think it just gives, there's a lot more customization that can be done. It, it's definitely a higher cost. But for me, I guess uh, the way my brain ticks is my profile is I have a pretty high D, a fair amount of I, and a fair amount of C. So for me, I'm cursed with, I want it done now, but I want to know all the details. So translate that into ADD, it means that I want to know now, I'm going to get this idea started because it's amazing, and someone else has to finish all the details, but I'm going to hold them accountable. And that's been working. You're getting things done. Well, Randy, let's let's talk about how you're staying in touch with your past clients, your sphere of influence. Over the course of a year, how would you stay in touch with your past clients and sphere of influence? What would be your marketing plan? You know, that's something that we're working on. It's It's a monthly newsletter. But the best, the best way for us to connect with people that are in our sphere of influence is to actually talk to them or see them in person. So we need to have a client party. We've been talking about it last year. We will do it this year, one or two. And, you know, just something fun and easy where people can show up or not show up and, you know, have some fun and meet them where it's not, it's not necessarily the time when they need us, but they're thinking about us and they appreciate us, you know, for, for doing something for them. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Randy, I'm kind of getting a picture in my mind of something, and, and you tell me if this is true. I'm getting the impression that this business that came in last year, the 98 closings, just kind of happened almost by osmosis because there was no formal plan to stay in touch with them, which, by the way, is amazing, and that now at this point, you're putting in more systems to go after that business to ramp it up. Is is that true? That's a great That's a great observation, Mike. <laughs> Yes, we've managed to be successful doing a crappy job at staying in touch. 
<laughs> well, that's fabulous. What that means is what you went if we go back to where you started with your concept you learned from your father that you do a fantastic job. People will come and track you down and do business with you and and that's that's the impression I'm getting here. And now once you put systems in place, it's only going to ramp up even faster. You'll get up to that 2-300 closings a year is my guess. So thank you for clarifying that for me. When you do something with intention as opposed to by accident, obviously the results, if, if we measure what we're doing, if we measure how many leads came from our sphere of influence, and we say, hey, you know what, we had 20 leads that came from our sphere of influence without trying, and we had 20 leads that came from another lead source that we actually worked at, what happens if we work the lead source that we got without even trying, without even working it? I don't like the, the T word. So if we work our sphere of influence, we should be able to double, even triple that. And people that know, like, and trust you are a lot easier to convert to using you as, as their real estate agent than people that you haven't met yet or that you have to warm up. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of agents have made this error, including myself, where you haven't followed up or kept in touch with people. Have you broken the ice to say, basically, hey, I haven't been staying in touch, but I, I want to start communicating again. I want to start getting back in your life. Did you do it just by sending out the newsletter, or have you been making phone calls to people? How are you reigniting the relationships? By sending the newsletter, so we'll send them mail, and then by picking up the phone and calling them. Some of them are reengaged in social media. Others could be, you know, I could run into them at coffee or somewhere like that. And then that triggers me to follow up a little stronger with them to stay more engaged. Let's talk about your newsletter. You mentioned you just put together a monthly newsletter and you're sending it out to 500 people. Is that correct? 500? Yes, 500. And how did you pick that 500? You've got a database of 4,000. How did you narrow that down to 500? I told our admin, I said, hey, I need to track, take the past two years sales and track who we've helped buy or sell a home. And never mind that we don't even have all the orphans in our database yet, but take those particular people and then we'll add those to our newsletter. And then we're going to take anyone that I can pick out that's a per someone that I know personally or that the name comes, comes to mind. And we probably went more than back a couple of years. Some of our records hasn't, haven't been that great for, you know, tagging somebody when, when somebody closed escrow or if they've got their updated information in the database, that type of thing. But really, it was people that closed in the last couple of years, people that I could pick up the phone and call, or I recognize their name as, hey, I like them. And, you know, frankly, life is about having fun and business is about fun. And if this stops being fun, I'll be doing something else. And I'm one step away from adding some other part of business to this company so that, A, it uh, keeps me engaged, B, it generates more income, and it's fun. So... The reason I, I brought that up is when I say having fun, if we had a client that was, and this is going to happen, there's clients out there that, or people out there that aren't people you want to deal with, you don't want to do business with them, whether there's somebody that you fired before you started to work with them because they weren't a good fit, or after you got through helping them, you realize that in the future, there's just not someone that's a good fit with you, with you. We don't send them an email. We don't send them, the, we don't need them in our life because People that are jerks, the only people that they're going to refer to you are other jerks. Tell me about the newsletter now. This is something you're mailing out. What does it look like? It's very simple. It's, and it's something that we'll, 
we'll change. Let's see, I'm looking. It's got a header on the top. It's got a picture of me and the team. It's got a little letter on it, a couple calls to action on the front page. And then whatever we're trying to, whatever message that I'm, I'm conveying to the, to the people that are receiving it, there's a call to action, but there's also a thank you. There always has to be a warm message in it saying, hey, you know, thank you. We want to thank Joe Smith for sending us the referral last month. And then maybe we'll put a testimonial in there. You know, social proof. I think that's very important. We got a review, an amazing review that someone hadn't sent it in yet. We got an amazing review last week after the newsletter. I believe they got the newsletter and said, hey, we never gave them a review. And it's kind of ironic, but I think it was triggered by the newsletter thanking someone else for the referral. And you've sent that out, you said, twice now? You just started this year? Yeah, we just started it this year. So it's only been out a couple months. I think we've had two two issues out. And is it a one, one sheet of paper folded, or, or what does it look like? How big is it? It's a trifold newsletter. It looks like it's about 8.5 by 17, and it's folded three times and put in an envelope, which is not usually my uh, – wouldn't have been my recommended method. And I'm not, I'm not attached to this particular vendor for this newsletter. Not necessarily the cheapest option, but it was something that could be put together, and it's out. So, again, the, news, the newsletter works as the one you send for sure. The database that works is the one you use. The scripts that work are the ones that you practice and you know take to heart. So all of that, I mean, you can have the best things in the world, but if they sit on a shelf or they're pretty, you don't mail them out, they don't really count. So this was a pre-formatted template. This is a company that had a template for the newsletter? Yeah, it's it's templated. Yeah, the backside has solar power, legal and secure. You know, this month, how appraisals differ. But the only the only part that's customizable is the, is the front. It's a front and back. It's half by 17. That's what it looks like. Yeah, we can customize the front and then the back is kind of, you know, whatever their uh, templated site is. What company are you using to produce that for you? That is Morris who's producing this. You have calls to action in there. What, what kind of call to action do you have? The first part, just a letter about return on investment. There's not a whole lot of call. It brings it to their attention. The next one is the thank you in the middle part, you know, thanks on behalf of the 10X Home team. We want to thank you for your referrals. And then we have a special thanks to, you know, our clients that referred. And then the next call to action is, who do you know that can use our help at a 10X level? Let us know by calling us there. And then that's one call to action. Next call to action is driving people to our website. You know, do you know you can search for home, find your home value, find price, blah, blah, blah. And then that points them to our website. So there's two calls to action. One of them is a strong call to action, asking for more referral business. You mentioned that that's how you got the the two leads that came in already? Yes. Yeah. And whether it was a call to action or just them seeing seeing our face, but had I not mailed this out, you know, nobody would be telling me that, hey, got your newsletter. Hey, it's great to hear from you and, you know, the whole bit. And then that turns into, I'm ready to buy another investment property. That turns into, hey, you know, my brother's looking to buy a house, that type of thing. Do you have a schedule of calls that you're planning to make to these folks, these 500 people? I've committed to three hours a week that's concentrated on just my sphere of influence. And then someone else can call past clients that are, you know, that I'm not familiar with. But our schedule call right now, we committed to three hours a week for that. And that doesn't include when I'm going through the database or when I'm driving and I think of somebody, I just call them, say, hey, those types of things. 
you see someone's house or you think of someone and you're driving along and you make a phone call. What do you say during that phone call? What's your script? Well, the one I made yesterday, the script was simple. You know, hey, Dean, it's Randy. I was just thinking about you. Give me a ring when you get a chance. That's a voicemail. I'm alive. I'm there. Simple as that. I may you put my last name in if I'm not sure if, you remember, you know, if they're going to know which Randy it is. If I do talk to somebody, I'll just start in a comfortable conversation like it never left off. Or maybe I'll mention, hey, you know, I haven't talked to you in a while. How's it going? And just see wherever it goes there. We'll use the Ford script, which is, for those people that don't know, it's family, occupation, recreation, and dreams. So you're asking them about their family because that's probably important to them. What they're doing for work, what they're doing for fun, and you know what the future plans are. So it's a simple way to transition a conversation so that it's not about you or real estate. And there's very rarely do I talk to someone and I don't ask them how things are going at work or are you still working at such and such? They ask me how my job's going. All the top trainers that you see out there, they'll tell you, hey, if somebody asks you how real estate, say it's great. Well, for me, saying real estate's great is like saying, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's a generic answer. So for me, the script that I use when someone says, hey, how's real estate going? Real estate's great. I'm running out of properties. You know of anybody that has a home that I can help them sell? So for me... I turn around a normal conversation about how's real estate. Oh, it's great. Well, it's great. It's so great that I've sold all the listings that we have looking for more homes to sell. Simple like that. You mentioned email. What are you doing when you email out to these folks? What, what kind of emails are going out? I'll put out things on holidays. I don't have an email newsletter yet that we're using to send out. With Infusionsoft, they have really strong spam requirements. So I can't just send an email out to 4,000 people because they measure the spam. So if, I think if it's over 1% or a particular percentage, then they could shut my whole account down. So I don't send spam, you know, and I'm very cautious with what gets sent out. The emails that go out are to people that we're already engaged, you know, in, in some sort, you know, they're already either a lead or someone that I know well enough, I can send them an email, but I'm cautious not to send something that looks like spam because that client that we sold a house to two years ago, they forgot what my name was until they opened the email. May click that spam button, and you know that's just not something you want to engage with. I know you have a team. I'd like to talk about your team here for a second. Tell me who's on the team. On my team, I'm the rainmaker, I'm the one that is the most likely to be out there in front of people and generating, you know, business on a on a higher level. And I'm also the listing agent, chief bottle washer, visionary big dreamer. So I'm always implementing or putting together some ideas in between prospecting, calling sphere of influence, going and listing appointments, writing checks for payroll, things like that. So that's what my role is. I'm my business partner, Ben, he's essentially the team manager. He trains the buyer agents. So he works with them one-on-one. There's accountability on a daily basis. He does very little selling, if any at all, because our goal is to create a scalable business with agents that and help them to succeed and then we'll be successful in the process. So a lot of our slow growth in the last year and not being at the high volume is really due to us creating a strong foundation, which is some challenges that I've had in the past prior to Ben, because at the speed that I move at doesn't necessarily allow for systems to be, to be implemented properly 
in my mind, it's simple. We get something that works. If we do it more than once, we systemize it. Once we systemize it, we perfect it, and then we make it scalable. So if any part of that process is off, it doesn't happen. With Ben's help, he wrangles me into working on one or two or three ideas instead of 20 or 30 or 40 that I tend to do. So we're a pretty good balance. And uh, he has no challenge telling me that he doesn't think I need any more coffee. And usually (laughs) that's in the morning before I've had any coffee. (laughs) So um, so that's Ben's role. He really uh, helps manage the team as well as he, you know, he trains the buyer's agents, helps keep them accountable, offers them assistance and training. So uh, he's a huge asset. We've got uh, one buyer specialist that's been with us a year, Mary. She's, she's amazing. She has taken on the systems and the, the accountability and, we had an outside coaching company that was helping us out last year and she embraced it. Our really, our niche for growing our team is we'll take a buyer's agent as an example that's doing four to six or eight deals annually and we're going to give them the tools that they need and the champion and the coaching and the training so that we can take them where they're averaging for a month because that's really what our goal is to have a superstar team that do that. Mary, in the past 30 days, we got off to a little slow start this year, but Mary in the past 30 days has put five in escrow. So she's someone that I have complete confidence that when I give her a lead, it's going to be handled properly. And if a client calls in, we had a client call in to um, voice some concern. I can, without a doubt, back her up and say, you know, that doesn't sound, there's, there may be something more to this because that doesn't sound like what I know Mary would do. And after investigation, Turns out that it was an outside force had nothing to do with the client or Mary. It was uh, kind of whispering in the client's ear. So it's amazing that you can back up your team with complete confidence because you know that the character that they have is just you know beyond reproach. That's not something we've always had, but I really enjoy that part of our team right now. So that's one buyer specialist. We hired an, a new agent, which is something that we haven't done before. We're training him from from green. He's actually been licensed for six months and we're training him from green because although he was licensed, he really had little to no experience. You know, he's been at two companies where they all promised training and now he's understanding what training and accountability is and he's enjoying it. We think he's going to turn out to be a rock star. Also, we've got uh, another buyer's agent who's starting in the next few months. Both of these guys were recruited out of uh, restaurants that I frequent ironically enough. We have one admin at the present moment. We need to add another one really to accomplish some of the things in marketing that aren't being done, social media, things like that. And then we'll cross-train that person so that they can also handle listings and transaction coordinating. I find that when people are specialized in only one thing, it makes it a challenge for the team or for them to go on vacations, be sick, pick the kids up from school when they're sick, things like that. So we need to be very deep in talent. We have an ISA that we hired that I've been coaching and training in the last 60 days. He's virtual. His role is to make calls to expireds and for sale by owners. And that takes care of the team makeup of who they are. How's the ISA working out? You said 60 days calling expireds and FISBOs. Has he been able to set appointments yet? Yes. We've taken three listings so far from his efforts been on 
probably 15 appointments, 10 to 15 appointments somewhere. I don't have the exact numbers on that. And it's, it's a learning process because at the beginning, I gave them scripts and dialogues that would allow them to convert to appointments. And then I pulled back because the appointment quality was lower than I wanted. And there were some cancellations, you know, in the appointments and people that I didn't, that really weren't qualified well enough to move forward. So I've changed, you know, changed the process and what the scripts and dialogues are with, with the people so that they need to know that when I go on an appointment, I'm going there for the opportunity to list their property. I'm not going out there to see it, to check it out for buyers in advance. I'm going there with the intention of being their expert agent. You know, they're not obligated on the appointment, but they do need to know that my intention is to go there to earn their business. Back to the question I say, he's working out good. There are some challenges with training virtually someone that's full-time and he was also green. And I don't know that I would, uh, I thought taking on someone green would be better than taking on someone with bad habits or, you know, a personality or culture fit that wouldn't, wouldn't fit. So it uh, has turned out to be a little more of a challenge than I, I thought it would be. But um, at this point I'm moving forward and uh, committed to doing the best I can to help him be where he needs to be. And ultimately it'll be his decision whether he can achieve the goals that we have set. Well, it sounds to me like you had four core people in your team last year when you closed the 98 transactions. You had yourself as the team leader and rainmaker. You had a team manager, Ben. You had a buyer specialist, Mary, and you had an admin uh, taking care of marketing. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Are you profitable? We are profitable, actually. Last year at 100 units, we are a lot more profitable than we were when we were doing, I think, a few years ago. I had a larger team. We were at 10 people. We were doing some pretty big numbers unit-wise, but the at the end of the day, I fed the business a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, to keep my friends employed, so to speak. So from that point on, that's when the restructuring went on. So yeah, we're, we're pretty profitable last year. We paid down a lot of debt that I had accrued in the previous year. So yeah, we were very profitable last year. It was, it was a good year and it, it felt good. <laughs> Although, um, just for anybody out there, when you pay down debt, you still pay taxes on that as income. That is so true. That is so true. You know, they, they give awards out for selling 400 houses, and, and, but nobody gives awards out for net. And I've never been a big award guy. You know, I've got a bunch of awards. But ironically enough, the most profitable year I had was the most lucrative year. Whereas I've had, when I say that, I mean, I've made over seven figures in a year with a 25% overhead. So that was just an amazing year for me. And then I've had years where you gross a half a million dollars and, and, and it's the reverse. You know? So essentially we really need to look at what our net is. It's not really what our units is and what our, you know, what our volume is, you know, what, even what the gross commission is. It's what do we get to keep at the end of the day and how many of these things on my list that I pay for Am I leveraging properly? That's really what I look at. Randy, would you mind disclosing to us what your net profit margin was last year? Our profit margin was at 40%. So if $100 came in the top of your organization, $40 came out the bottom and went home with you? Yes. I understand you have some affiliated businesses, some sideline businesses, and I'd like to talk about them just real quickly. One, I believe, is called Trustee Sell bidding and wholesale property. What do you do with that business? 
That is the business where we still have clients that come in and they'll bid on trustee sales through us, whether they're going to buy and resell or they're going to buy and hold. So obviously, we stand a better chance of buying and hold properties, you know, just because the margins don't have to be as great. Now, is that business part of your brokerage or why is it separate? I'm the principal on a lot of it. So easyfixup.com is the site that drives people to it. So I'll run it through the brokerage. If it's, you know, the commission part, I run through the brokerage. A lot of times I'll have people that want to partner with me. So I'll be a print. I'll act as a principal on that. Or on, in some cases I can refer business out to other people for, for parts of it, depending on where it is. So we get people asking me about other parts of the country. So, you know, at that point I reach out to someone somewhere else in the country to send them, you know, an investor. A lot of times someone that reaches out to us that wants to bid on a trustee sale or wants to buy something wholesale, a lot of times they end up being something we, we bring through to conventional traditional real estate because there's, there's good properties that fit their needs there. And there's a lot less risk for them. I see you have this other entity called 10xreferrals.com. What is that? I've uh, set up a referral network that is a national thing for agents. And what, what it really is, is it's just a referral base for agents that are like-minded where no matter what franchise you're in, you can send somebody to Keller Williams, Remax, whatever it is, but the reality is, or even CRS, the reality is unless you've talked to them, met with them, or have any kind of confidence in who they are, until you make that connection, they're just a name out there that happens to be on a website that you're involved with. So the premise with the 10xreferrals.com is this is going to be people that actually reach out to be part of it. When you're with Remax or Keller Williams and you're in their database, you automatically get your listing posted as, hey, I'm willing to take a referral in the Phoenix area. Whereas with the 10xreferrals.com, when people go there, it's not just you happen to get somebody that's an agent at a company or a franchise that you're affiliated with. It's someone that's reached out and said, hey, I'm interested in doing referrals. I agree to hold to a certain standard, not just that I'm with a company, when I'm serving your clients. And it's really more about getting back to relationship and working with people that you know, like, and trust, just like your clients would. Randy, what drives you? I want people to be proud of me. uh, I think I grew up that way with a dad that was in family business, always successful. I was always looking for that great job. You know, you did a good job or really to make him proud. So I think that just carried on. So with clients, when I, when you, there's always going to be that client that says, well, I know you're happy because you're going to get paid. And my response to that is, well, here's how it works, Jim. Obviously when this closes, I am going to get paid. But the reality is my goal from the beginning is to make you happy. And then I'm going to get a good report card from you. You're going to tell me I did a great job and then I'm going to get paid. So for me, it's not about getting paid. It's about doing a good job, having you happy with what I do, making you proud. And then I'm going to get paid. So really, if I was in business and they were paying in matchsticks, I'd have a ton of matchsticks because I made a lot of people happy and I got a good report card. That's really how that works for me. Randy, why have you been so successful? You know, for me, it's, uh, it really is because of my drive and, you know, I push myself, I push or I try to help people move forward. I'm continually learning. I read every day. I've probably read five or six books this year already. It's what drives me. I mean, if I'm at the gym, most people are listening to music. 
I've got a headset on and I'm reading a book and it's just, just, it's just really, I just, you know, I can't do something average. Average is boring to me. So our team 10 X homes was named at doing things at a 10 X level. It really is doing 10 times what an average person would do. And for me, that comes natural. If I didn't have to sleep, I wouldn't, but that's really what it is. I just, I'm always have to be growing. If I'm not growing, I'm, I'm dying. Randy, you've mentioned that you've been a principal in a whole slew of these transactions, a whole bunch of fix and flip. Have you built up a long-term real estate portfolio? You know, I had built up a long-term portfolio, and ironically enough, when just before the market crashed, I sold everything, to be clear. I sold everything I had, and the reason for that is no one's ever asked me that, that question, but... Uh, not, not that, not that way. I follow my gut instincts or, you know, if my spidey sense starts tingling, so to speak, to, you know, take something from a superhero, I, I, I listen to it. And when the market was going up here in the, in Phoenix, we were almost up 50% and everyone was saying it's going to keep going. And I'm, my gut's telling me there's no way it can keep going. I mean, there's no way we're not California, you know, as much as we'd like to be, we're not on the ocean. So there's nothing to drive it except emotion. So I sold everything I had at the time, and then I had one property left, and I said, I'm going to keep this one property, and I rolled up to it. It was already rehabbed, ready for a, renter, for a tenant, and as I was there, it was I think sign was in the yard. I was going to put it in the MLS the next day, and like two doors down, there's somebody, you know, has a rock band in the garage. You know, this wasn't a cheap neighborhood. I'm like, man, this is not going to make it easy to lease this thing. And I went back there, put it in the MLS the next day, and then I went back again, and there's still going on. I'm like, nobody's going to move into this house, you know, to rent it. So I just said, screw it, and uh, I put it on the market, and I sold it. And, and I actually got through the market downturn with no damage. So, yeah, I liquidated everything. And then uh, 2008, 2009, I started uh, buying again. 2009, I guess, I started buying again. And I held some properties. And I recently just sold the last condo I had because it had almost doubled in value and the rents didn't seem like they were going to go up any further and, and they might inch up, but the return, the money was sitting there. And I said, you know what, let's liquidate that, put it into a self-directed IRA so that I have it for when I want you know, to invest in something else. So that's kind of where that's at right now. I do not have, at this time, I do not have any properties left. I will be again acquiring again here, but I, I may go more towards a commercial point just because there's less emotion and I just don't have that much uh, tolerance for even hearing that one of my tenants is doing A, B, or C, or they're not doing this or whatever. That's kind of where we're at now. You definitely prefer the, the fix and flip side of the investment side of the business as opposed to the buy and hold, you don't like working with tenants or having tenant issues. This is what I'm hearing, and that makes sense. When you do a fix and flip, you've done so many of them. Do you have a minimum return that you're looking for in the fix and flip? Yeah, you know, it used to be 10%, and then I've, I lowered that recently just because the sales prices are getting higher. Yeah, 10% is pretty much my number. That's really where I want to be. But sometimes if it's the property that's going to take a lot less and it's I know it's going to be, you know, simple so to speak, I'll you know, margin can can deviate a little bit. 
Do you have an absolute dollar amount minimum that you're looking for that you have to earn at least $5,000 per transaction or $10,000? As a rule of thumb, I don't want to make, make a real estate commission on it because at that point the risk is too great. So it's, for me, it's not just a real estate commission. So I don't have a small amount, but for me, I'm not doing anything for 3000 or even 5000 because the risk to, to own property at $5,000 profit you better be doing a big volume and you better be able to get out unscathed. So and when I say that, I'll give you an example. When I'm working with an investor that's buying and fixing and flipping and they say, well, I want to make sure I don't ever lose money. What happens if everything goes bad? And I always give people the worst case scenario. I said, the way that we're going to buy things, at the very worst case, you'll land on your feet. I can't guarantee that someone's not going to make a mistake or something's not going to happen. It won't be in our court. We've never had that yet, knock on wood. But you need to buy things well enough where at the very worst case, you aren't going to get hurt. So really, that's what I look at for an investment. But don't shoot for $5,000 because if something happens tomorrow to the property that isn't covered by insurance or the market changes, $5,000 isn't enough to protect you. So is there a number? There's a minimum number that you feel comfortable with. You said 10%. What does what that typically end up being? Uh, I'm guessing 20000 because your average sales price? 15 to twenty, fifteen to 20000 If you shoot for fifteen to twenty, and something doesn't go exactly as you want or you have more repairs or you, you experience a market change, if I ended up at 10, I'd be okay. And, you know, that's not on a $500,000 property either. You know, that's figuring... Worst case on a hundred and fifty thousand dollar property, if I made ten, okay. Randy, when we were talking, I think by email earlier, you mentioned before this interview, you mentioned the idea of a fast wholesale deal. What's a fast wholesale deal? Well, a fast wholesale deal is where I purchase something and I can sell it the same day or the next day. So it's it's something that we used to do, and it's something that. I can probably ramp up fairly quickly. I'm really focusing on our team. I could stop doing traditional real estate and just invest and buy and fix and hold and fix and resell and make a very good living. And it actually got boring for a while. So um, the goal is to build this team to where it's sustainable, where the agents and everyone's happy, and it becomes a true business that has not quite passive, but almost passive. You know, hands-off businesses don't usually succeed unless they're structured very well. But that's the goal. Within five years, you know, there's somebody else in place running it, and that gives me free time and money to invest or, you know, buy commercial buildings or do something else that's a little more challenging. Not that real estate isn't challenging. It's challenging, but I get, I get a little complacent and bored with things if they're not fast-paced. How have you balanced that out? You've mentioned that multiple times that that you get bored quickly. You like to create new things, create a lot of excitement, a lot of a lot of ideas. It sounds to me like you've tried to put in place a counterbalance to that by bringing in your business partner Ben, who, from what I've heard, is a more system oriented and single task at a time oriented. Is that correct? Yes, he's definitely a good counterbalance. And, and I don't uh, I don't look for balance in my life. I had a, a coach many years ago, a real estate coach, and she told me, she said, don't look for balance. You'll never get that. Look for counterbalance or look for integration. So that's really what I do. Uh, the reason that um, Ben was is, is a great partner, 
he's definitely system oriented, but he's more about making it simple for other people. For me, my brain works very fast and complex and I need to make sure that I make it easy to use, not necessarily have all the details. So he's very detail oriented and in certain things with my personality, when I hyper-focus on something, I'm as detailed and in it as can be, and I, I won't be distracted. If I'm working on something, I'm working on something, you know, but the multiple projects that I have going or the the boredom that I may seem to get with things, it's only because I can't speed the world up as fast as my brain is going. Ben's a pretty good mix. He's real quick to say, okay, hold on. Transition from that topic to the next one. Let's go back to this. Let's get this thing worked out. And then you can do what you need to do. So he's a great counterbalance because he's intelligent. He's smart. He knows how business needs to be. He knows how to manage people. But he also realizes the strengths that I have, how we can leverage those with the strengths he have. And it's almost like, you know, it's like a super, it's a super power together where separately we probably both would be extremely successful, just maybe not get there as quick. Randy, did you read a lot of comic books when you were a kid? Yes, I, I did read a lot. It was just something I was good at. I wasn't, I wasn't great in school. You know, I think I was uh, probably a C and D student. And I was actually even in a special program because apparently I hung out with the wrong people. Uh, yeah, I did read a lot to answer your question. You mentioned superpowers a lot. So I was guessing that you have deep reference for comic books and superheroes. I do. It's kind of interesting. So al- along with, you know, my big why, which is to make people proud, part of that is to be the hero. And, and it took me a while to really see where that came from. And if, if, you, if you were sitting in my office or standing in my office right now, you would see a giant Superman canvas on the wall, you know, with the sun shining on him. What's cool about that is, is I actually put a hinge on it and behind it is a whiteboard. So that's your idea board. That is one of them. Yeah. There's some brain dumps to go on up there for sure. And then, uh, there's a big uh, glass case with a bunch of uh, Superman statues in there. And to paint a picture of my sense of humor, there's a uh, Wilson volleyball in there also. Was that Castaway? Or I'm trying to remember the name of that movie. Castaway, yeah. So yeah, so the superhero thing, yeah. Um, I used to, uh, I used to have a label. We just remodeled the office here. Prior to that, the name moniker outside the door, it said, on my office, it said Fortress of Solitude, and then on my team's office, it said Batcave. You have to have fun, you know, where you're at. Do you apply that concept when you're working with the client that you are the hero protecting the client and doing the best for them? We do. And that's part of the, the 10X theme is, you know, is, is the level that we're operating at. But I, just in my presentation and how we present to clients, we would never say we're the hero. Obviously, that would be something that we want them to come across to see at the end that we are the hero. Randy, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting into business, what would you tell them to do first? First, start tracking your who your sphere of influence is. Really solidify those relationships. More than likely, I would recommend that they join a great team that's going to offer them some training. 
they need to master scripts and dialogues until it is subconscious and it becomes part of their normal conversation. It's no longer a script or a dialogue. It's just part of how they talk. And they're never sounding like a salesperson. Gather as much education as they could, you know, from online seminars, these types of calls, networking, really just, you know, be a sponge for knowledge and know as much as you can. Randy, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Oh, absolutely. I've been uh, listening to these for for years. And prior to that, there was back in the star power days, that's really very similar to what they did. And, and that was, it's always enjoyable because you're hearing what other people's successes are, how they've accomplished what they can, what they have. And, you know, you take what works for you out of it and there's going to be parts of it that don't, but there's always something to learn no matter who it is and how smart you think you are. No matter where I go, I can always learn something from someone regardless of who it is or what the venue is. Well, Randy, I've come to the end of my questions for the day. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? You're usually much more capable than what you think you are, and you need to believe in who you are and that what you have is beneficial to other people. And if you don't believe in yourself and what you have to offer, then they aren't going to either. Well, Randy, your creativity and adaptability have taken you far. You learned how to buy trustee sales at the courthouse steps. Then you turn that process into a system with your phone books of information and quick pre-sale drive-bys. Then you leveraged it by building your own pool of investors waiting for a good deal. Now you're using the same ingenuity and drive to develop your past client and sphere of influence business. You've adapted your father's work ethic and determination to do every job right. You and your team are now the superheroes protecting and fighting for your clients. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 49 luxury homes last year with an average price of $1.8 million. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.